Hi, and welcome to another episode of Investing Compass. Before we begin, a quick note that the information in this podcast is general in nature, does not take into consideration your personal situation, circumstances, or needs. So today is our third book review, Shawnee. Mm-hmm. So if we keep doing these, people are going to think we're literate. <laughs> but we're going to review a book today that has influenced how we both approach investing, and that is Common Stocks, Uncommon Profits by Phil Fisher. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you can go back and listen to our other book reviews. So we did The Intelligent Investor by Ben Graham and The Outsiders by William Thorndike. All right. So before we do jump in, um, we did promise a burger review from our Beyond Meat episode. So Mark, did you go and get the burger? I, I did. Mm-hmm. And how was it? You know, honestly, it was okay. I, I have more criticism of just a, I think, regular grilled burger <laughs> than than the plant-based meat that was in it. Mm. So, I, I mean, I think as Australians, don't want to insult everyone who's listening to this. I mean, you're Australian now. I'm Australian too, way, so. but I, don't, I, do not, I do not adhere to this version of burgers. There's just too much stuff on them. There's like all these different sauces. I love sauce. I, I mean, I know you do, but there's a time and a place. <laughs> okay. A burger should be simple. <laughs> all right. Like the Gidley Burger. The Gidley Burger is very good. And you also enjoyed the burger that we went and had in Canberra. Yes, that was very good as well. And I got that two weekends ago oh, as well. A convert. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Enough burger reviews. Okay. How, about a, how about a book review? <laughs> All right. Sounds good. So we did choose this book because many influential investors, including Warren Buffett, consider this book incredibly influential to their investing style. In fact, the techniques in this book are still used at Berkshire Hathaway to this day. Yeah, and for those that know Warren Buffett's history a bit, it was this book and his friendship with Charlie Munger that transformed his investment approach from a pure Ben Graham-style value investor until what it is today, where he uses a combination of Ben Graham's focus on price and valuation and, of course, what we're going to talk about today, trying to find great companies. So this new approach was famously first demonstrated with his purchase of C's Candies. And it continued to some of his most famous investments, including Coca-Cola and American Express, and of course, the largest holding at Berkshire, which is Apple. So what we'll try to do with this book review today is to give a little bit of context around when the book was written, the lessons that it gives investors, and whether they are still relevant today. We don't want to waste your time, so we won't leave you in suspense. We definitely think that there are some valuable lessons that investors can still take from Phil Fisher's book today. So let's start with context. Common Stocks on Common Profits was written in 1957 and published in 1958, and Phil Fisher was an early proponent of growth investing. He dropped out of Stanford Business School to work as a securities analyst. And he did go back to Stanford later, and he was one of three people to ever teach the investments course. But he left his job as a securities analyst, and he started working at a stock exchange firm. But he left that also when he opened a money management firm, Fisher & Co., and he ran that until he retired at the age of 91. Yeah. So even though he quit a lot of stuff early on, we've talked about three different things that he quit. <laughs> yeah. Then when he, he found the right thing, it. he stuck with it till yeah. very old. Are 90- you going to work until you're 91? Are we going to be doing this when we're 91? When we're 91? Yeah. Are we the same age? <laughs> yeah. Until I'm 91? Um, yeah. I will be the oldest man in the world. <laughs> so I might have other things that I can do with my time. But anyway, there we go. So So Phil Fisher, despite quitting many things early in his career, he also became an early proponent of growth investing. 
And now, of course, we associate growth investing with tech stocks and Silicon Valley and electric cars and new technologies. But back in the 50s and 60s, it was a pretty different landscape. But nonetheless, Phil Fisher had a lot of faith in innovative companies that had research and development backing their products. So, for example, Phil is well known for his position in Motorola. He purchased Motorola in 1955, back when it was just a radio communications company with great long-term growth prospects. Phil held this stock until he died in 2004, a true testament to long-term investing in great companies with growth potential. And he was quoted as saying that the best time to sell a stock is almost never. And this is very similar to what you always hear from Warren Buffett. And this worked for him with Motorola. He said that if you are in the right companies, the potential rise can be so enormous that everything else is secondary. He said, every $1,000 I and my clients put into Motorola in 1957 is now worth $1,993,846. After all the ups and downs of the stock in the market, if I'd sold Motorola because I thought it was overpriced 10 or 15 years ago, chances are I would not have known when to get back in and I would have missed a tremendous profit. So he received an annual return on Motorola of about 20%, which is pretty incredible. That is pretty incredible. Mm. And $1,000 to $1.9 million. Yeah. Yeah. Insane. Yeah. So our advice is to find investments like that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And podcast. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) That's it. And what he does in this book is to discuss how to find high quality stocks. So he starts by speaking about the past and why and how investors invest in the stock market. So the why is pretty simple. Investors invest in the stock market to make money. And the how, there are two ways that investors make money. So the first is to time the market. That's buying shares when they are cheap and selling them when they are expensive. So buy low, sell high. The second is to find outstanding companies and invest in them for the long term. Now, neither one is right or wrong. Buying low and selling high is a mechanism through which investing is successful. But Phil thinks that buying high quality companies now is much more important than waiting until the prices are temporarily depressed and then selling when they're overvalued. He believed in finding outstanding companies and holding on to them forever, just like Motorola. And so he goes on to base the book on how to find these high-quality companies that you're able to hold. And ultimately, this is, of course, what investors seek, but it's much easier said than done. Let's just pause here for a moment to speak about this concept. So Phil believed in acquiring companies for the very long term and ideally not selling the stock, but just continuing to hold it. So his belief was that good quality companies should be acquired at whatever price is possible and then just held forever. But we have a few hesitations with this approach. We believe that one of the keys to investing is buying quality companies at a reasonable price. That is the whole investing philosophy of Buffett. And the emphasis here is on reasonable. Buffett moved away from the dirt cheap Ben Graham approach, but he's still interested in the price. So we do want to pause here with an example, because taken to the extreme, this statement from Phil can lead some investors to simply determine that valuation doesn't matter, and it's always a good time to buy a company. And we can point to a few times where this approach hasn't work. we can, worked. We can think back to Microsoft and Cisco during the dot-com meltdown. And that was in the year 2000. I also had a meltdown that year. <laughs> and every year since. Pretty much. Uh, <laughs> Um, But so we can look at Microsoft and Cisco. It took 16 years for Microsoft to recover from that crash. Cisco was a similar story. At the height of the dot-com bubble, Cisco was briefly the most valuable company in the world. It had a market cap of $555 billion. Shares back then were worth about $146 at its peak. 
In 2002, the share price hit around $8, so quite a fall. Right before the GFC in 2008, Cisco hit $34, still way off its peak of $146 during the dot-com bubble. Last year, it rose to $62, but has retreated from there. Still not really close at all to its peak. Yeah, and Cisco did have a stock split. But even with the split-adjusted high of $73, the recovery is slow and continuing. And remember that Cisco and Microsoft are great companies. And this is really just a quintessential example against Phil's thesis to just purchase a stock now instead of waiting for a market drop. Due diligence still needs to be conducted to ensure that you are not acquiring an incredibly overvalued asset. That's right, Mark, because the higher the valuation, the higher the risk associated with that investment, and it has more room to fall. And we saw that with both Cisco and Microsoft. But what I will say in defense of Phil is that he is right in a way. Investing is not a sport that you can get involved in from the sidelines. And there are many investors that have a sense of reluctancy to invest in the markets as they keep waiting for a market drop. In some cases, investors can be waiting five, 10 years for this to happen, all while keeping their investment in cash. And like many things in life, there needs to be balance between those two stances. You can invest in high quality stocks, but you do not need to acquire them at sky high valuations. And Mark, this is something that you believe in. You've spoken about your list a few times on this podcast. Did you want to speak to it a little bit? Sure, Shani. So I, <laughs> I keep a list of stocks I would love to own. So high quality companies that I've done my due diligence on. They fit well into my portfolio and align with the goals that I'm trying to achieve. But I think they're just too expensive for me. So if there is a downturn or a drop in the market, I'll take it as my opportunity to acquire these shares that I would like to own. All right. So let's move on to a few more lessons. Phil Fisher endeavors to provide the structure to find these companies in a straightforward way. And he starts by introducing us to the concept of scuttlebutt. And so this is one of the concepts that Fisher is most well known for. So why don't you explain what scuttlebutt is? Mm, so scuttlebutt is about discovery. Phil believes that the best way to find high quality stocks is to know as much as you can about it and gather as much information from trustworthy sources as possible. Now, when this book was written, it was a very different landscape. Phil wrote this book in an age where you weren't able to access financial statements within seconds of typing in what you were after in a search engine. He wrote this in an age where financial information and data was tightly held, and he believed in gathering data from ex-employees, current employees, research scientists, competitors, and vendors. Yeah, and I remember I remember reading this, and I, I thought that this was pretty impractical yeah. for, for most <laughs> investors. Uh, and of course, you know, a lot of this information has been democratized through the internet. There are a lot of law changes that prevent companies from saying anything to one specific group of people. But, you know, I will say that this is also broadly the process that our analysts follow. They speak to the C-suite of these companies, get insights into strategy and approach. They conduct in industry and competitor analysis. And they're, of course, able to do this because this is their job. But, you know, many investors do not have the same access to these individuals or the time or resources to conduct the same in-depth research. This doesn't mean, though, that you shouldn't. We think one of the most important concepts with investing is knowing what you're invested in. And that involves spending some time to understand the prospects for the underlying company and the environment in which it operates. We went through the process of how investors can practically undertake this analysis in our Equity Deep Dive episode, where we used Beyond Meat as an example. Yeah. So Scuttlebutt was me going and having a burger. <laughs> Basically. Does that count? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, even though the way that Phil describes Scuttlebutt, it's not as applicable to modern day investors. There are ways for modern day investors to achieve the same or similar outcomes. And reiterating what Shadi said, the purpose of this process is really about understanding what you've invested in before you invest. All right. So you've done your research. 
Bill then goes on to the most famous chapter in the book, and that is the 15 points to look for in a common stock. And this is pretty much just a checklist of what he thinks you should look for in a quality growth stock. Yeah. And we're not going to go through all 15 points because at that stage, we might as well just be doing an audio book. Personally, I've had my voice described as annoying <laughs> and a horrible American <laughs> accent. So I don't think anyone would get an audio book that I was reading. Yeah, we do these um, surveys for our clients and a lot of them have a lot to say about your voice. Which <laughs> Yeah, you would think somebody would have better things to talk about than my voice. But anyway. Back to the 15 points. So some of the 15 points seem a bit dated if you're reading them in 2022, but this is where we need to distill them into the foundational concepts that Phil is talking about. So the 15 points really revolve around a few things, how important a long-term horizon is for building wealth, if a company can continue to innovate and get a return on their research and development efforts, will sales result in growing profits? And is management qualified? And do they demonstrate integrity and honesty? And this list is how Fisher describes quality. He believes that if you're able to find quality at a good price, that is the key for investing in growth stocks. So let's go through a few of the main points and speak to why Fisher thought these were important. So many investors know how important a long-term time horizon is for building wealth. We won't spend too much time on this one because we spend about half our time on the podcast talking about long-term time horizons. And then what do you think, Shani? The other half, mostly talking about Priscilla. Mm, you know, I think so. Your dog. It's who, important. Yeah, who tried to escape when Shani came to the office today. <laughs> I was 10 minutes late. Yeah. He really wanted It's pouring in Sydney at the moment as we're recording this, and he hasn't gone for a walk today. So. Yeah, well, me neither, but I didn't try to escape <laughs> anything. Um, but long-term horizons. So Phil asks, as one of the points, does the company have a short-range or long-range outlook in regard to profits? And he goes on to say that as investors, we should have a long-term view, and we need to find companies that align with this. He thinks that many companies are too focused on earnings, and they may forego taking actions that will benefit the growth of the company in the long-term to avoid a short-term hit to earnings. And we spoke about this in our book review that we did on uh, William Thorndike's The Outsiders, but CEO's main job is capital allocation and they must decide where funds are being directed and for what purpose. There must be a balance between rewarding existing shareholders with immediate income through the form of dividends and investing back into the business to ensure that the business continues to grow. And we'll speak about this a little later, but he addresses the emphasis that investors place on short-term reward that can and has come at the detriment of long-term growth for the company. So these pressures can result in not investing in the business and instead, just making sure that short-term earnings are higher and dividend payouts are high, you know, even if both of these activities are not in the long-term best interests of the business. But let's speak a little bit about short-term prospects for companies. When short-term prospects for companies are being overly judged by investors, that's where we can find opportunities. We see that all the time during earnings season. We see falls in profit resulting in share prices being punished even when there's really no change or a negligible change to the value of the underlying business. A good example of this is Facebook. Facebook have invested a huge sum of money in the metaverse, $10 billion this year to be exact. Yeah, and Shani mentioned CEOs before. So one of their jobs is capital allocation. And one of the levers that they can pull is to invest surplus cash back into the business. And investing in the business is not something that's going to give you an overnight reward. So like most worth like most worthwhile investments it's a long-term play and that is really betting on the future of the company. Now is the metaverse a good or bad thing? 
We'll find out, but the investment was one of the reasons behind a lacklustre earnings announcement, and that then caused the stock price to plummet by 26%. This was a $230 billion wipeout, and it was the biggest one-day stock plunge in the history of the US stock market. And we've seen this before with Facebook, obviously not to this extent, but when they acquired Instagram, which is largely considered one of Facebook's most successful acquisitions. Market commentators and investors really did not like this acquisition and thought they paid too much. Instagram now has over a billion users and it contributes over $20 billion to annual revenue. So not bad. Yeah. And one of those 1 billion users is your dog, Shani. It is. And also your food account. Okay. Let's not talk about my food account. (laughs) It's the most embarrassing thing that I do. Um, But to get back to Facebook or Meta now. So the question here is that if you're an investor, do you trust Zuckerberg's vision? Will the metaverse be the next big thing? So every company, and Phil Fisher points this out a lot, every company needs to continue to create new products that drive the next round of growth. And of course, to get there, you need to invest heavily in them before they start to show a profit. These are the things that you need to grapple with to be a growth investor. All investors are trying to predict the future, but for completely new products, you're trying to imagine a world that doesn't exist yet. So let's move on to a few quick points that he mentions that investors can look out for in companies. He says that investors should ensure that companies have products or services with sufficient market potential to make possible a sizable increase in sales for at least several years. Yeah, and basically what he's saying is that if you're looking for companies with sustainable growth, it's important to look for companies that have products that address large and expanding markets. The market isn't expanding, there won't be growth. He also asks, does management have a determination to continue to develop products or processes when their existing products slow? And what he's saying here is that all markets mature. They can't continue to grow exponentially over years and years. And so to continue this growth, does management have the determination to continue to develop and introduce new products that will continue this growth? Again, this is connected to capital allocation decisions that management has, whether they are able to invest in future growth of the company. They must be able to expand the market that they serve, or they have to enter new markets to continue this growth. There are a few more points related to this general point, but focus on whether the company invests adequately in R&D efforts. So we actually talked about this last week, right, Shani, when we were covering Beyond Meat. So that's the deep dive that we did in our previous episode. And we said that we saw a huge amount of potential for Beyond Meat as they had a large and expanding market in the vegetarian ethical consumption space. So we looked at some of the drivers of that. We looked at international markets. Um, so we thought that they had a huge opportunity in Europe and China, where they've started manufacturing capacity. We also said India is naturally a large market. So that is certainly an opportunity where they can grow quickly for a long amount of time, obviously, if their product is adopted. Yeah, exactly. So as Mark said, Beyond is a perfect example of having room to grow. And as Phil says, it is definitely a large and expanding market. And they are investing heavily in that future growth. So once again, we have no idea if that will pay off or if plant-based meat will take off. But I think there is a runway there if it does. And your job as investors is to assess if you think there is a market for it. One point that is particularly important and pertinent to the current environment in which we operate is one of his points around profit margin. So Fisher emphasizes that to invest in a good growth company is really, really important to focus on worthwhile profit margins. Companies can show amazing growth, but is it really worthwhile for an investor if it does not bring profits that will actually reward investors? 
And it is a question now whether this is still applicable to today's environment. We're seeing a lot of companies that have soaring market capitalizations that have little to no profit margin. We see household companies and popular holdings like Airbnb, Snap and Uber. They've either never turned a profit or turned a negligible profit. Tesla is just starting to turn a profit. And this isn't just a point in time snapshot of profit margins. These are moving targets and changing conditions. So Fisher also calls out that it's important that you understand what the company is doing to maintain or improve profit margins. And this is really important because like all indicators of financial performance, profit margins are based on the past. And it's the profit margin in the future that's important as an investor. Yeah. So as Mark said, changing conditions mean that there are forces actively working against the company keeping a profit margin. Inflation increases the company's expenses and as more and more competitors enter the market, they will pressure those profit margins as in the majority of cases, prices will be lowered to compete. So it is definitely something to pay attention to when investing in a stock. Understanding a company's strategy, whether they're able to reduce costs or if they have pricing power and have the ability to raise prices, both of which will allow them to maintain and improve profit margins over the long term. And this is where moats come in and how they can help companies that have inbuilt protection from competitive pressures and could either have pricing power or the ability to reduce costs through scale. Yeah, and we won't go into too much detail with moats since it is something we discuss frequently. But as a refresher, the moats that we see at Morningstar are switching costs, the network effect, intangible assets, cost advantage, and efficient scale. So if a company has any or multiple of these moat sources, means that they have a competitive advantage that protects and grows excess returns. And we'll pop information in our investing resources page that goes through moats and how to spot them. Okay, so those were a few things to look out for in order to find a quality stock. Bill then moves on to speak about how to choose growth shares that are right for your situation. That's right, Mark. So he started with that list of 15, what to buy, and then he moves on to what to buy and applying it to your own needs. And this is where he speaks about risk and return. He thinks investors should focus on stocks that have the highest profit comparative to risk, but he acknowledges that circumstances differ from person to person and to invest according to your circumstances. And he separates those circumstances for growth shares into two broad categories. There are larger, more conservative growth shares. So you might say this is an Apple right now. They have of course, temporary share price losses and volatility like all shares, but over time, they'll reward you with growth, but decent enough dividend yields as well. Then there's smaller growth companies. These can be much more profitable as there's more room to grow, that bigger runway ahead of them. But with that comes risk. These are the textbook growth companies that you'll see that are reinvesting all their funds in the future growth of the business. And this means that they would pay little to no dividend, for example, but may reward investors handsomely with stellar growth. And Phil liked the latter, but he knows that not everyone is in a situation where they can forego income from their investments. So understands why those larger, more conservative stocks do have a place in some investors' portfolios. And that is something we talk a lot about on Investing Compass, finding the investment that's right for you. The right investment to achieve your goals. And it may be a combination of both. You may invest the majority of your portfolio in blue chip shares and a portion on smaller companies that are more risky but also have higher future potential. And as we move on, Phil tries to answer two of the most common questions that we get on this podcast, during our webinars, what we see on forums. They're questions that every investor has asked at some point, and it is when to buy and, of course, when to sell. When he speaks about when to buy, we've heard him say throughout the book that it is better to just to acquire a high-quality company now instead of waiting for a downturn. 
But in this chapter, he suggests that investors should focus on really high quality companies that might have temporary hiccups or problems that they will overcome. Usually the short-sightedness of the market will result in a temporarily depressed stock price. And Phil isn't just asking you to focus on companies with issues. He says that investors can also find great buying opportunities if they look closely at companies that may have an increase in profitability through investments that they're making. For example, if there was an old factory that produced tin goods, machinery is 40 years old, it needs to be replaced. Well, with a bit of investment, it's replaced and the efficiency and the quality of the product increases, resulting in an increase in profitability in the future. And a question that is, in my opinion, even more difficult, and that is when to sell. Bill keeps his chapter quite simple, and he lists a few reasons um, that might trigger a sale. He says that you should dispose of his stock when it is no longer suiting or meeting your objectives. And what he means by that is that investments that you buy should be bought to suit a purpose and reach a goal. If that is no longer true of the share, then it does not need to be in your portfolio and can be disposed of. He also says that simply, if you made a mistake investing in a company, don't let your emotions get the best of you. The sooner you sell out of that company, the sooner you can put your money to work again. This is, of course, easier said than done. Selling at a loss is never nice. The third reason is that you've found something better to invest in. Now, this one is a little controversial. Just because you have found an attractive investment, it does not undermine the original stock or the reasons. It all... It is also important to consider taxation in this situation. Capital gain from selling can eat into your total return. He also talks about and provides a pretty interesting take on what many investors' favorite thing is, and that's, of course, dividends. So dividends are often a compromise that you make when investing in gross shares. Gross shares require capital to continue growing, so they do not pay out a dividend or they pay out a low dividend until they've stabilized and matured. And Phil argues the case that dividends aren't always the be-all and end-all, and there are other avenues that companies can take with the funds that result in successful investor outcomes as well. He believes that retaining earnings help with growing the company, so for investors to keep an open mind. If they are looking for stocks that have dividends, it will likely be that this is an investor that's looking to draw stable income from their investments. He suggests looking at the payout ratio for the company and seeing how stable and sustainable the dividend is. And that is something that Shani and I have mentioned a few times. So the payout ratio is a bit of a balancing act, too low and does not provide investors with decent income, but too high. And it means that if there are any unfavorable market conditions that impact the company's earnings, the dividend may be cut because it's neither compulsory or a set amount. There are some key lessons that investors can take from Phil Fisher in this book. And it should challenge how you view investing and either contribute to your approach or strengthen the reasons why you choose to follow a different thesis. One thing I like about Phil is his long-term investing approach. We see a lot of investment professionals touting their allegiance to long-term investing, but we see that their holding periods contradict this. We see a lot of investors like you and me doing the same thing, mainly because it's human nature. We're preconditioned to remove painful circumstances or associate doing nothing with not doing enough. So we trade. Phil did not just advocate for long-term investing. He did it. He held onto stocks for generations. But the thing to be careful about his approach is that we can fall in love with a good narrative as investors and a story of ever-expanding markets and sales. The stories are always going to intrigue us as investors, but that is when you need to concentrate on the quality of those sales. What is the margin and the competitive environment the company is operating under, and if they have a competitive advantage in that situation? So investing is never going to be perfect. Investing over decades-long time horizons means that you'll make mistakes along the way. So remember that growth can be alluring, 
and a narrative can be alluring, and both can hide cracks just beneath the surface. You know, it's pretty similar to falling in love with someone and ignoring some bad signs, assuming that the person will change. You ignore blemish after blemish, but reality can catch up to you. So that can be the first installment of our dating podcast. <laughs> a dating advice podcast? Exactly, exactly. We, Do you think uh, we're really the people that should be giving this information? Who better than us? I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, look out for that. We'll have to think of a catchy name. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can work on that. But for now, maybe we'll stick with investing until we come up with that million dollar name. <laughs> but we would love to hear suggestions for the name. Or, of course, any comments, suggestions about future shows that we should do. So my email address is in the show notes. And once again, we would love a rating or a comment on your podcast app. And also, if you have any compliments to give Mark about his voice, you can also send him a message. That would be great. So I, I received <laughs> one compliment. It was during an interview. I was interviewing somebody in the U.S. who just got out of uni. Mm-hmm. And halfway through the interview, she said, I really like your voice. Well, it wasn't quite halfway through because that's about when I ended it because I didn't know how to follow that up. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, you can email me any other compliments. But anyway, thank you guys very much for joining. Any advice in this podcast is general advice or regulated financial advice under New Zealand law prepared by Morningstar Australasia Proprietary Limited and or Morningstar Research Limited without reference to your financial objectives, situations or needs. You should consider the advice in light of these matters and any relevant product disclosure statement before making any decision to invest. To obtain advice for your own situation, contact a financial advisor.